Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Ms. Patricia Wiskunas, who is the founder and CEO of Crime Survivors, special organization for those in need who have been abused by other individuals or by society in general. Welcome to Seldom Said, Patricia. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if we can start off with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you're from, and what's brought you to this time and place. Sure, absolutely. So I do believe there's a difference between living a victim's life in a survivor's life or a survivor. Um, and myself, personally, I was victimized. Um, and the most recent one was on April 4th of 2002, when my personal trainer came into my home, drugged me, wrapped my face and head in saran wrap, beat me black and blue, screaming that when he was done killing me, he was going to kill my son, um, punching me, kicking me, headbutting me, banging my head into the wall, um, until when he started screaming that he was going to kill my son. I believe that every mother, every parent knows that you'll fight your last breath for your child. Um, and it broke out into a fight. Eventually, I was able to get over my 12-foot balcony in order to eventually get to the front door to escape to get to a neighbor's house to call 911. And I have to say, life-changing for me. I never would have ever thought someone would want to try to kill me or kill my son. Um, But I do believe that with faith there is hope, and I believe that I made a promise on April 4th of 2002 that with each and every breath, if God gave me my breath, I would live for community above self. Um, This guy was charged with deliberate premeditated attempted murder, burglary in the first degree, assault with a deadly weapon, and criminal threat. And through our legal system, he only served approximately 120 days. How have you presupposed in your own mind getting past this. I can understand the organization as an outlet, but how did you deal personally with the trauma of this experience? Um, I think I went right into starting the organization Crime Survivors because I didn't want one other person to go through what I went through. Um, But I do believe that with faith there is hope. And whatever anybody else believes, that's their choice. Um, I'm just saying for myself, I believe that God has given me in essence, the greatest gift, because I survived, and he has given me my next breath. So with with God and with my faith and with hope, there's healing um, to not be defined by what happened to us. And for me, I believe not only with faith, but being able to be surrounded by friends and family and and community people to be able to get counseling and therapy, um, to be able to turn to other people. And I accept the fact that this is something that I have to realize I'm going to have moments the rest of my life. You know, every time I have to use saran wrap to wrap food, every time I have to go past the 24-hour fitness, every time I have to do certain things, I have to be able to cope and heal and deal. And I acknowledge it, I recognize it, but I also know that the greatest gift is to be alive and blessed to be here today. Have you been able to balance forgiving and forgetting? Absolutely. Um, To me, I think a lot of people put forgiveness and forgetting in the same bucket, um, or they think they are of the same, and I I know personally they're not. I'll never, ever forget what happened to me. It's part of who I am. It's ingrained into my core of my being. but it also isn't defining me, and I have been able to forgive. I forgave him. I forgive myself. I forgive other people in my life that have done me wrong. Um, And I do believe that with forgiveness, I'm able to live without the pain, without the resentment, the anger, the fear, and I'm able to live with forgiveness for others and myself to be able to do good for my community and to live for community above self, of which I've kept that promise that I made on April 4th of 2002, and I will continue to do that, and that is never forgetting, but forgiving. Do you reconcile this event by considering 
an aberration, an exceptional circumstance that probably would not happen under normal circumstances again? Or is it something that you feel everyone should be aware of the possibility of? I think everybody should be aware that it is possible to happen. Not only it happened to me, but it could happen to anyone, um, especially in the climate today. Um, probably 25 years ago, I would have said, oh, this is a one-time thing. It would never, ever happen again. But in today's climate and with the organization and helping victims day in and day out, I know that's not to be true anymore, especially with our legal system that I feel is out of control and I don't feel that we have justice really in essence. So I think when we see so many offenders um, getting more opportunities and more uh, chances in life than the victims get, um, and I see victims being re-victimized day in and day out. So although it may not be my personal trainer that comes into my house and drugs me and tries to kill me, um, is it likely that something else could happen to me in the future? It, it is likely in today's climate, but I'm not going to live with the fear of that happening. I'm going to trust in God, and I'm going to be able to do my very best as my days are left here on Earth. You've used that term justice, and a myriad of people will use any number of definitions of the term. How would you define justice in your own mind as you feel it should be correctly denoted? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's, that's a tough thing in today's climate, again, is what is justice? I mean, justice to me, in essence, would be that if this actually didn't happen, if something didn't happen and I was able to live a happy and a healthy life without any pain or, or victimization or trauma or, you know, but if you're looking in the legal process of what justice is, I mean, when you think about justice, you think about something, someone being held accountable for the wrongdoing, for what happened. So if someone is going to go through the trial and they're only going to get 120 days, to me that's not justice. Now, do I think if you would have received 10 years that would have been justice? I, I honestly, I don't know. But I do think whatever the consequence is, there should be a consequence and then there should be an opportunity for the victim to be able to be guided through the process, provided equal to what the offender um, abuser receives, in a sense, and that if if an abuser, an offender, is going to get 120 days or 10 years or a life sentence, or they're going to be released back out into the community, there should be rehabilitation, there should be um, safety for that victim so that they're not taunted, that they're not re-victimized, they're not afraid, um, that they're as well protected. So I guess it's kind of a long answer of what is justice, but to me, I don't think that I receive that justice, but I do believe what I hold on to my heart and my soul is that he has to face his maker today. So no matter what would have happened to our legal system here, it is my hope that he is held accountable someday, eventually, when he faces his maker. Do you feel the Patricia before the event is significantly different than the individual you see in the mirror this morning? Absolutely, without doubt. I'm definitely not the same person. And some days, which is shocking to some people, I thank God for, for what I had to go through in order to be who I am today. Um, because I do think that I'm a stronger person. I'm no longer the vulnerable, naive victim of which I do believe I was living a victim's life. I believe that I am now seeing myself as a woman, a mother, a grandmother, a community leader that's going to be very outspoken. I've become a bit of a squeaky wheel um, and very outspoken, of which I was not prior to this, um, and that I set my boundaries into place. Um, I'm able to stand up and speak up for not only myself, but for others, and to be a voice for the voiceless. So I am absolutely, without doubt, a completely different person today than who I was before, but I still have a genuine heart and soul, of which I feel that I've always had my entire life. Has there been an essence 
from your childhood that lent you to becoming involved, becoming an advocate? The average person won't necessarily turn away, but they will acquiesce rather slowly and allow the event to take place. Was this always something that was part of your psyche, your emotional makeup? Well, I was victimized at the young age of 8, again at 15, again at 20, and then at 32 when I almost lost my life. So I do believe that there's a cycle and there's a pattern. And for not only myself, but for many other victims, and so as you've been victimized, it becomes your normal, it becomes your part of life in a sense. But I believe that almost losing my life changed everything. Um, it, it just turned my psychic into a different arena to be able to say, maybe enough is enough. Maybe I, God is giving me this opportunity and blessing to be able to use it to help other people to break the cycles. Um, but when I look back into my childhood, I was also uh, sacrificed an awful lot and gave a lot. And, you know, I, I attribute that to my faith at a very young age. I've always had the faith. And I attribute it also to my grandmother, my nanny, that also was a, a giver and um, with such kindness. And I carry her with me. Um, and even though she's passed on now, whenever I'm challenged with life challenges, I always turn to her and look to her to hopefully guide me um, to get through those moments. Your reaction to the Me Too movement, do you feel it's an extension of what you're feeling since the event? Um, I think it is, I think it's time. I think the Me Too movement um, is powerful um, for many people. I think it has its goods and its bads with everything um, that has that. Um, I think it's good to be able to give women a voice um, and also be able to be able to empower and strengthen. And that's women or men, um, children or teenagers or adults or elderly, whomever that may be. I think we all need to have a voice, um, and and it's not just a voice for sexual assault. It's a voice for child abuse. It's a voice for um, murder, rape, domestic violence, um, elder abuse, human trafficking. It's it's a place to use a voice, but then what do you do with it? Where are you going to go get help and support? And hopefully with the Me Too movement, a lot of that help and support is being provided and guided. But money is, is an obstacle. Um, funding is an obstacle. Um, and I'm hoping that the Me Too movement is able to uh, raise enough of money in order to help uh, grassroots organizations like ours, or like I always refer to you as, you know, you're in the gutter working and you're just trying to help as many, many as you can. Um, so I'm really hoping that it continues. I hope it's not just a... Me Too movement for a moment. I hope it grows. I hope someone takes it and expands it. And I really hope that it's enough is enough with victimization and trauma and teaching our youngins that to set up boundaries. Just recently observed purely by chance a martial arts studio teaching children. They were between 8 and 10 and they were being encouraged to strike back to raise their hand in defense of themselves and their honor and their pride. At what point do you feel defense should be physical, and at what point do you feel it's time to run away, walk away, tell someone else? That's a really good question. Um, you know, we provide self-defense and safety classes. We work with an amazing um, organization and trainers to be able to provide that to um, victims of violent crime and community members as well. And, you know, I think it should be provided as young as kindergarten, maybe even earlier than that. Um, I think we should open up the dialogue. Um, it's no longer stranger danger. Um, I think if we should be taught to be able to protect ourselves when we're feeling fear, when we're feeling anxious, when we fear that we're going to be harmed or hurt, I think it's time to be able to protect ourselves. Years ago, it used to be where you had to run and get away um, and to not fight, to not hit. 
But in today's climate, I think that we need to to fight. We need to flight, you know, fight, flight, um, hide, get away, whatever it may be, to be able to protect ourselves, our family, and our friends. Do you feel then we're living in a very difficult time? Absolutely. I think we are definitely living in a difficult time. Um, when I grew up, I mean, we never even thought about the fact that there would be mass shootings. Um, I don't ever remember thinking about the mental health or mental illness or the mental wellness climate that we're in today. Um, I would have never thought that someone would want to kill me. I didn't think about, you know, murder in essence. And now when you see our children, we have to be able to explain to young children today about mass shootings. Um, we have to talk to them about rapists. We have to talk to them about domestic abusers. And we would have never thought about that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, in in a sense. And now we have to have those open dialogues because that's the reality that we're living in today, sadly, but that's the reality. We're within a little bit less than two minutes of our first break. I wonder if you might consider one thought, Patricia, and then... Uh if I do have to make it a bifurcated statement and you come back with it, I can remind you of the time. One wonders whether, in point of fact, there should be a rationalization of the events we find ourselves in. Do you feel we overdo explaining ourselves in rationalizations? And this should be an entirely visceral reaction. You hurt me, I will hurt you in turn or defend myself as I must. Um, I mean, I, I really, I, I honestly don't know really how to answer that. Um, I, I think we need to protect ourselves. I think that we um, can exaggerate at some point. Some people can. I think we all, we can be able to. I mean, I think that with the media out there the way it is today, I think we can think that someone could hurt us that maybe is not necessarily going to hurt us. Um, but if we have a gut feeling and a gut instinct, it's there for a reason, and I do believe that we need to protect ourselves if we have that. Now, I'm not saying going and shooting someone that you think is breaking into your car or leaving you a note or, you know, someone you think is crossing over your line. Um, I think you need to be trained. I think we need to learn what's right, what's not right, and when do we protect ourselves and when should we protect ourselves? Because I don't think that we should harm someone else. Patricia, if I may, allow me to take the first break. We'll be sure. back and hopefully continue this thought. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Miss Patricia Wiskunas. Patricia, if you could return to some of the comments we've been making about individuals and the moral judgments we have about them. Um, about the judgment about them? I mean, I don't like to live my life with judgment. Um, I like to live my life with you know, community above self. I like to be able to say, you know, these things are happening and ha where do we go to help, but where do we go to help the victims that have been victimized and traumatized? Um, and how do we step away from, um, as we use the word evil, or how do we be able to embrace and help one another um, without so much judging people? It's hard to not judge murderers, attempted murderers, rapists, sexual abusers, molesters. It's hard to not judge them. Um, but I always say, you know, as, as even as bad as it is, is we must pray for them. Your spiritual essence seems at the core of who you are. Have you always been so deeply involved? I believe that my faith has been very strong ever since I've been a young girl. I feel that it's been in my core of my being, but I do feel after I survived, um, I feel that it, it became that much stronger. Um, and it's not easy being in the climate that I'm in because um, a lot of victims don't want to hear about faith. Um, a lot of community members think that I talk too much about my faith, but with faith there is hope, and I believe that 
one of the struggles that we're living in today's climate is we've gotten too far away from faith. We've gotten too far away from family, gotten too far away from friends. Um, we've gotten too far away from just being kind. Um, and if I survive to still be here to be a little kinder um, or to share my faith and, and, and hope, give hope to someone else, then that's what I feel like I, I'm blessed with. All right, then, if we are proving to be objective, what is your fervent and honest opinion of the legal system as it now stands? I feel our legal system, well, I feel like our justice system is out of control. I feel like we have a legal system, but I don't feel like we have justice. So um, I think our legal system has gone down some wrong paths, um, and although I think and I compliment and I appreciate the people in our legal system, whether it's um, judges, whether it's district attorneys, deputy district attorneys, whether it's probation officers, uh, especially law enforcement, I thank and I appreciate and I value, and we need all of them. Um, but I think the system as a whole has become more offender, abuser-friendly, rehabilitation-friendly, and not victim-friendly. Um, although I see advocates and I see nonprofits like ours doing amazing work, um, I don't want to take away from all of the great work being done, but when you do not, when you see victims not getting um, the services that they need or not having rights like the offenders have, and when you see someone um, being able to molest children and only serve, you know, two years, three years, or someone murders someone and they were supposed to have 25 to life and now they're only getting, you know, five years and they're being released. I don't feel that that's a legal system that's working. Um, I think our legal system needs a lot more work. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to do what I can on, on my platform, but I'm only a tiny, tiny piece to this huge puzzle. Um, and, I, and I hope that our elected officials would step up to the plate and would be able to do more um, but then again, they're more offender-friendly, in my opinion, than they are victim-friendly. Crime survivors, why the name? And what was your initial protocol in setting it up? Um, you know, when I look back and I think about starting a nonprofit, not having the experience of a nonprofit, I, I really, honestly, I was... I was dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, um, all of that. So I really, honestly, I don't even know how I really did it. All I know is I, I didn't hire an attorney or anybody else. I filled out the paperwork myself. I, all I had in my head was I wanted to be able to prevent one other victim to go through what I had to go through. I wanted another child to know they didn't have to live a victim's life or be re-victimized. Re I wanted to be able to give hope um, to other victims. And so filling out the paperwork, coming up with the name Crime Survivors was just uh, thinking crime and then thinking survivors, you know, we're going to survive the crime. Um, you know, doing, talking to many people, asking them what they thought of the name, what should we name it, and just running with it. Uh, because it, it is saying crime happens everywhere, but survivors are also everywhere, so crime survivors will be able to bring awareness to the communities that even in the safest cities, crime happens. Um, how do you prevent it from happening? How do you advocate, and how do you heal from it? And how do we become a community together? So for me, it was, you know, first when we first launched, the colors were black and blue, like a black and blue mark. You know, I used to tell people, you know, I was black and blue, but that they, they tended to fade away, but we'll never forget what happened to us. But we can survive. We can thrive through it. And now we've changed our logo. We've changed our colors to purples and teals and greens and blues and more uplifting, more hopeful, more spiritual, um, more full of life to let victims know that they can get through this. Um, 
And it's become something that I'm so proud of because to start a nonprofit, to be able to bring together a team of people that believed in me at first, but then believed in our mission, then believed in the component and being able to see the accomplishments and what I thought to help one person have now helped thousands. Um, and, as, you know, I'm very proud of that, but I'm nothing without my team at all. So it, it takes a lot of people and a lot of pieces to a huge puzzle in order to make a greater difference and impact. Patricia, how then do you advocate or balance honest advice as to what a reaction should be and the realism of the moment where you feel that the victim may not be able to receive satisfaction? Um, a lot of victims don't, um, and that's why it's, it's, it's sometimes personally a struggle for me because sometimes I have to keep my two cents to myself of sorts um, because... You know, we have to meet a victim where they're at, not where I'm at. It's no longer about me when I'm sitting down and talking to a victim. It's not about me. It's not about what happened to me. It's about them. It's about where are they in their victimization, their trauma, their healing, their survival. And I can only suggest and recommend things to them, but I'm not, I'm very clear with every victim that we work with. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a survivor that went through what I went through trying to help another victim to know they don't have to be defined by their victimization, that they can survive. But I'm also very clear that I know that many other victims are not going to be the voice that I am. So that's why I've become a voice for the voiceless. Um, and I also know that not all victims are going to stand on top of a mountaintop like I do and scream, yell, holler, whatever it is, to be able to get justice, to be able to help a victim get through what they need to. And I also know that some victims can't choose or make a choice for healing. And I do believe that each and every victim, maybe were their advocates, they have other advocates, but a victim is also their own best advocate, of which sometimes is very hard for a victim to hear that, a survivor to hear that, a family member to hear that. But we all do have choices. We have a choice to, as hard as it is, even in the darkest and the darkest of times through trauma, it's hard to get out of bed some days. But if we can just make a choice to take one step out of bed, it's part of healing. It's part of getting out of the darkness and going to the light to be able to have that hope and healing. And we have a choice. I have a choice every single day to, to live in negativity through our justice system, our legal system, and complain and groan and holler, or I have a choice to make a positive impact. And I'm choosing very, very wisely each and every day to not live being negative Nancy and rather positive Patsy and, and do good in my community and, and to hopefully inspire other people. For the purpose of argument, then, hypothetically, I'm an individual who has been abused. I have your telephone number, I have your email, I contact you. How does the protocol work? So we do an intake and we, we find out, you know, what is needed and whether or not we're getting a call from law enforcement or directly from a victim or from another service provider really depends on the situation and circumstance. It really depends on what the crime was that was committed. So first and foremost is making sure that the victim is okay. Are they in a safe place? Are they able to talk? Um, and then finding out what is the need. Is the need shelter? Is the need clothing? Is the need diapers for their children and milk? Um, is it relocating? Is it medical care? Um, you know, so it really, really depends on what that victim needs. And not only can we do that intake to find out, we can also provide to them whether it's counseling or therapy or a night stay in a hotel because they need to get away from their abuser. It's getting them into a shelter if it's domestic violence. It's providing diapers for their babies, but helping them to learn how to get the diapers themselves in the future. It's helping them to maybe get back enrolled into school. It's helping them to be able to find a new job or a new career. 
Um, it's helping them maybe even at times learning how to balance a checkbook or saving money. Um, it's wherever they are at that we're providing and with our wraparound services is working with the many other amazing organizations out there doing great work. We don't like to step on anyone's toes. We want to collaborate and partner to make sure that these all these other services are also represented to that victim. Would you vouchsafe or advocate individuals in the listening audience to become personally involved? It would seem there's an elemental danger to placing oneself in harm's way, even to protect an individual or a loved one. Um, I think if someone knows of someone that's been is being victimized or traumatized, I think reporting it to the police, I think a victim should report to the police to be able to get the necessary help, support, and resources. Um, sometimes it's making a call to a national organization, whether that be domestic violence, whether it be sexual assault. Um, sometimes it's reaching out to a local shelter or a local nonprofit in the area. Um, if it's a family member, if it's a friend, if it's a coworker that knows something's happening, whether it's reporting it to the police, whether it's talking to that person that's being victimized and offering a helping hand or some guidance. Sometimes there are victims that don't want or can't accept the help at the time. But if an outside person is documenting that, paying attention to that, um, I think that is so very important. Um, and I, and again, I really do stress, even if you do not feel the need or you want to report, I, I do believe in guiding victims to report. Um, if they choose not to, that's their choice. Sometimes you can't. You can't force them. They've already been forced into something already by being victimized and traumatized. But to guide them and to hopefully be able to know that if we don't report, that person can go on and re-victimize other women, other children, other people in the community. So sometimes we report because it can stop and it can prevent it from happening again. This sounds as if it would lend itself perfectly to a how-to book which sounds very awkward to say, but it sounds real. Have you ever thought about such a project? Um, it sounds real because it is absolutely real, and it's happening all the time. And I actually have two books that I, I plan on. I have one that I'm working on with Faith There Is Hope, and the other one is absolutely a workbook. And I would love to be able to do a workbook if I eventually can find funding in order to do it or someone to be able to partner with me to do it. I would welcome the opportunity because I, I do think that is absolutely needed. I would imagine the all-purpose question that one has to ask with anything that involves a capital offense. People are always concerned about capital punishment and how someone would react to it might I ask what your reaction is? I try not to think about it. I try really hard. I mean, I get asked the questions because I will, you know, we talk about laws and we talk about, you know, all of these, especially now with all the new laws that are coming out and, and they're not victim-friendly. Um, I have mixed feelings and emotions about it, and I'm never usually without a loss of words to be honest, but when it comes to something like this, I, I pretty much am because I think my faith, my heart, and my soul uh, distracts me. I, I kind of partially think that, you know, believing in uh, the death penalty and believing in so many things, um, but then again, I, as you can probably tell, I struggle with it because I, I don't believe in harming or hurting another human being being unless you are to protect yourself or to prevent or stop them from harming or hurting another human being. Are you able to rationalize the argument for a preemptive reaction, a woman living with an abusive husband who hasn't really hurt her yet? Um, I mean, a, a woman has to make their own choice, or a man that's being abused as well, especially in today's climate. A lot of men are being abused. So, you know, if a woman chooses, they have to be the one to choose to leave. Um, we can guide them. We can um, help support them through personal empowerment. Um, but 
a woman, in essence, has to make a choice. And some, some women, some men can't leave abusive situations or circumstances. Um, and when you look back years ago, the majority of, there were a lot of families that were in abusive relationships, and that was considered, I guess, normal. In today's climate, that's not considered normal. But if we have to, I think we need to do more education to young children um, because if there's abuse in the home, the children are seeing it and that becomes normal to them and then they go on to be either the abusers or they become abused. Um, but what defines abuse? So it, it just depends. If someone is being verbally, physically, emotionally, mentally abused, it would really depend on what abuse is happening in that home, Please whether that, that person should leave or not. Please hold that thought, because that's something that seems on the mind of a lot of people. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. We're in the final segment of what has proven to be an interesting program. It's an interview with Patricia Wiskunas, who is the founder and CEO of Crime Survivors. My name is Robert. The program is seldom said. Patricia, if you could continue with your views on the permanency of punishment, whether capital punishment is a viable option, whether life sentences without parole are viable options, or whether you believe that people can be rehabilitated. Um, I do believe in rehabilitation, like I said, um, with the exception of um, murder and molestation. Um, I just do not believe that if someone molests a child that they can be rehabilitated. And, you know, I ask God for forgiveness every day for that because I do believe that within my faith we're supposed to forgive everyone and we're supposed to be able to give everybody another chance. So hopefully I'm forgiven for that part because I do not believe that they can be rehabilitated. But everyone else, I do believe in rehabilitation. I just would hope that our legal system, our justice system, would rehabilitate them prior to releasing them. Um, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles and problems that we have in today's climate is with people being released constantly um, and they haven't been rehabilitated, so therefore they go out and they re-victimize someone else. They re-victimize, you know, our children, our community members, our friends, our family members, and that's not okay. Um, and do I think that someone should serve a life sentence? Absolutely. I think that if you take a life, um, if you molest a child, of which that person has to live a life sentence, um, although I'm a survivor, I'm, I'm still living a life sentence because I have to live every day with what happened to me, while the other person is just walking around living their life. Um, so I think that there's a balance, and it's, it's a struggle, but I think within, again, the laws of today, um, releasing people, I mean, we have today where they're taking away bail, so people will be committing crimes and released within 12 hours um, without bail and thinking that a computer is going to now make a decision on whether or not someone is a high risk or not a high risk, to me as a survivor, is a, that's offensive to me. Um, it's bothersome. It's re-victimizing victims. It's not protecting our community. So I think people need to be thinking twice on capital punishment. They need to be thinking twice about um, death sentence. They need to think twice about um, providing offenders with rehabilitation tools if necessary, so then we would have less homeless, maybe less mentally ill, because um, it all goes hand in hand together. This idea of risk assessment, we've done a number of interviews about it, what is your own description of it and your reaction to it? Um, my reaction to it is the disappointment. Um, as I said, I, I'm quite offended by it because it has not included or asked victims on their feelings or their emotions or their thought process 
It has not asked survivors or family members or communities on what they feel and think of. They we don't know how they've come up with this plan of how it's going to work. Um, are we okay with a computer deciding if someone is safe or unsafe? Um, are we okay with a computer deciding if this person is going to molest a child? Um, so as you can tell, I'm quite bothered by it. Um, I wish that we would have had an opportunity or a chance to find out how is it working, how was it put together, um, why we were not included in that process. Um, and my concern with it is how many more children will be molested, how many more people will be raped or sexually assaulted, how many more people will be murdered, how many is too many. Um, if one person is released on this system and one person is raped or sexually assaulted or murdered or molested, in my opinion, that's one too many. Have you had time to think about the overhaul of the justice system that has just been passed overwhelmingly by the Senate? I think about it. I think about it a lot, and I, I struggle with it a lot. As a, as a survivor, as a community leader, as someone that likes to look up to our elected officials, as someone that respects our elected officials in the process, um, for someone that's in the gutters day in and day out working with victims and trying to give them hope, trying to give them healing, I struggle with it. I struggle with it because I don't feel that um, we have a system that's working, and we can vote on things. Um, we go to we go and we vote. People don't even read what we're voting on. Um, we have so many laws that are absolutely out of control and not supporting victims or public safety, and yet they keep getting voted in. So I do struggle with it. I don't know. I, in all honesty, at my level, with who I am. I don't know how much of a difference that I can make, but I'm going to surely use my voice and I'm going to surely do what I can with respect and still with kindness um, and still kind of be loud and outspoken in a squeaky wheel of which I'm known to, but also agree to disagree with respect because I think that we, we've gotten too far away from that when you look at social media um, and you look about all those challenges of people thinking they can say and do whatever they want. I think we need to look at the fact of how do we keep our children, our families, and our communities safe? How do we support measures and bills that are going to make us stronger as a community um, without being jeopardizing our legal process or without jeopardizing having more victims? Are you sympathetic to the ideas of stand your ground and individuals taking the moment to simply say, here I stand, I can do no other? I stand my ground on a lot of my stuff, but I'm always open to hear someone else's um, ideas or suggestions or recommendations or why do they feel so strong or believe? Why are they standing their ground on something that they believe so strongly in? Um, and that's where I agree to disagree sometimes with people, and I'll say to them, well, I agree to disagree with respect. Um, I'm going to be standing my ground and being very outspoken and be a voice when it comes to victims with helping them and supporting them. Um, and if somebody else feels completely opposite, it doesn't mean that I'm going to... I'm going to try to detour them and try to change them to be able to see my side of things, but if they still stand their ground on what they believe in, who am I to take that away from somebody else? Not to return to that horrid evening, but if the occasion was warranted as indeed it was, would you have desired to have a weapon at your possession? Um, I do believe in the, my Second Amendment right, um, and if that day I would have had a weapon, um, would have I used it? I would have. If 
if I would have been given that opportunity then, I wish I would have been able to fight back stronger. Although I do feel that training and safety is most important. Um, and I do struggle with the fact of not wanting to be able to take another life. Um, so what have I used it to protect myself? Absolutely. Do I think other people should be trained properly? And do I believe in my Second Amendment right? Absolutely, without a doubt. And do I, if I'm given that, if I'm in that situation today, will I use it? Absolutely, without a doubt. Now, the escape that is described in your article, jumping 12 feet, have you suffered any long-lasting physiological difficulties? Um, and I don't know if I jumped or if he pushed me or if I fell. I, I don't know. All I know is I went over that 12-foot balcony. I liked, I think I jumped, but I, I, don't, I don't know. But I do know that um, I do suffer. Now, whether or not I could wholeheartedly say 100% it was because of that 12-foot or because of him choking me or um, hitting me or punching me, I... I don't know. I do know the doctors have said as I age, I'm going to have side effects or things that are going to affect me. And, and I, I, I think I do now. I try not to focus on it. I try not to think of it in that sense. I try to get up every day with the idea that I'm still breathing. So yes, my back is painful. Yes, I still have problems with my arm. Yes, I still have t problems with my throat. But I also have my breath. I also am grateful to be alive. And I do know that things could have been much worse. I could have been killed. I could have had, you know, um, he could have brought a gun or a weapon himself. So I do realize that things could have been much worse. So I'm just grateful and blessed to be alive and breathing. Let's say hypothetically you click your heels, make a wish, and it's 10 years from now. What do you hope that the organization and yourself are doing at that time? My hope is that I'm still alive in 10 years. My hope is that we have a better legal system supporting victims of crime. My hope would be that we would have enough of funding for our organization to be able to provide the necessary awareness, prevention, advocacy, and healing within our communities. Um, and that I'm able to still have my faith with forgiveness for others and for myself, um, and that I still have love in my heart and soul. That That's all that I wish for for our future, is to be able to continue with this commitment and this promise that I made to be able to do good um, and to have enough is all I need. How may those in the listening audience contact your organization, become involved for one reason or the other? I hope that people will contact us at crimesurvivors.org. Um, and if they're listening, that if they are victims themselves, um, if they're survivors or they're a loved one or a family member, that they reach out to our organization um, 844-853-HOPE is our, is our uh, phone number, or crimesurvivors.org, or me directly, my email, patricia at crimesurvivors.org, um, and so that the listeners would know that they're not alone. Although my struggle, my trauma, my victimization is completely different than yours, you're not alone. There are other people out there that care about you, that will empower you, inspire you, and guide you through the process. And whether you're law enforcement or elected official or a service provider, I thank you for doing what you do day in and day out because we all need to collaborate and partner together because none of us can do this alone. Not victims, not survivors, not service providers. We need to come together and we need to be a force to be reckoned with to make it a better society, a better community. How would you propose training someone who really wants to experientially become involved in this, what type of preparation would you offer them? 
for us, I mean, training is, to me, most important is, I mean, you have an opportunity to go back to school and get educated into whatever field you want to be in to be able to help victims. And that's a great, great option and possibility for anyone wanting to be in this movement. But I really do think that training can come firsthand um, from being able to work with victims, to be able to see a victim have the hope and the healing and the survival in their life. Um, And first and foremost is to just be in the moment and listen and to hear and to acknowledge Um, and to get, whether it's 40-hour domestic violence training, whether it's the sexual assault training, whatever it is that you're wanting to do, whatever field you want to do, is just to go back to school, get these trainings, um, and be able to, again, be with the victims to be able to see firsthand what needs to be done to be able to help make a difference. Are there a series of, and this would be an awkward question, I'm not looking for any definitiveness, but uh, have you developed a series of safe houses where people can be hidden? Yes. There are definitely, we work very closely with um, shelters, domestic violence shelters, um, in order to make sure that victims have the opportunity to go to these places that are hidden, that are not found, um, or the locations are unknown, to be able to protect them, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's human trafficking, um, to be able to have that opportunity to know that they can be safe and protected. Do you appear in court with the victim? Um, we like to work with the victim assistance programs, depending on what county or state they're in, because that's what they do. Um, if they're not able to attend or um, at times, if it's a civil case or if it's a different circumstance or situation, we will attend. This seems to be an incredibly emotional scenario and situation. Would there be any final thoughts you would have explicitly with someone in the listening audience who feels they're on the cusp, who is not sure which direction to turn in and which direction to go, what could you tell them in that moment of realistic advice, that pragmatic feeling, that would provide them with an escape? It it is very emotional. It is very hard. It's very difficult. And it's life-changing. And when you've been through the worst of your worst at that time, and that's your own personal worst, and you're scared and you're fearful and you feel like you're alone and you don't know what's going to happen, is just making a call and just trusting in someone else to maybe be able to be on your shoulders with you, to guide you, to help protect you, to help empower and inspire you through that process because you don't have to be alone. You're not alone. There's many people that care and love you that don't even know you but want to help and support you. And will it be a struggle? It will be a struggle. It will be life-changing. But you don't have to be alone and you don't have to be in pain or discomfort or in fear. There is so many more opportunities in this lifetime to be helped, to be healed, um, and to be guided and protected and safe. And so whether it's our organization you call, whether it's a local shelter you call, whether it's another nonprofit or a national hotline um, and you call anonymously, allow someone else to be there during your struggle, during your moment, um, because you can survive it. You can get through it. It's a rather optimistic way to end this program. This is an intriguing question, one I'd like to pursue at a later date and perhaps develop some applications for the listening audience. I thank you, Ms. Patricia Winskunas. This has been Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.